you who are our visitors, you've come at a time in, in which we are undertaking to entertain and answer various questions that have been submitted to us by the membership of the church and a couple who are not members of the church regarding the second coming of Christ. Having preached a series on this subject about, oh, five months or four months ago, we thought that there were some loose ends that we did not want to take up in the exposition, but that there might be some good holy itches that needed to be scratched. And so we gave opportunity for questions, and after submitting them, now these several weeks, we've come this morning to begin what could be a one, two, or three-week consideration of the questions. If you knew all the questions that I have, you would be amazed if we could try it in one week. Some of these are heady, some of them are very difficult, and some of them continue to uh, produce debate throughout the kingdom of God and throughout the history of the church. So I would remind you that I am not standing here as the final expert on all these issues, but as one whose stewardship dictates that he do his best to help you in these and really very helpful and very enlightened questions. And I want to dive right in the midst of it now and entertain them. First of all, I want to take up one that was handed me just this morning because uh, it's uh, in a different kind of category from some of the others that we're going to be mentioning, and it will be helpful for us to follow it. In your hymnal, in the back, there is the Shorter Catechism. And on page 668, question 37, one of the questions is, regarding this question in the Shorter Catechism, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Down at the bottom of 668 on the left column, question 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer says, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united in Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Now, the question is, what is the relationship of believers resting in their graves and being still united to Christ? Christ is in heaven in body and spirit, yet the answer links the fact that believers' bodies are now yet not yet raised because they're still united to Christ. I've looked only at the scripture references in the catechism, but still do not understand. Can you shed some light on the phrase, quote, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection, unquote. Thank you. And what I thought I would do is just tell you what I think, and then if Pastor Sarver would like to add a word to uh, liberate him, uh, to give him the wonderful privilege of participating, I, I'll do uh, my best. In my understanding... The emphasis of this last clause, our phrase, being still united in Christ, do rest in their graves to the resurrection, is not on the fact that though uh, it's not so much pointing toward some mysterious um, element of uniting, but to emphasize that though their bodies are not still united to their souls, though their souls have been uh, taken to heaven and are in the presence of Christ, as we read in Second Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
Even though they're separated in body and soul, yet those bodies are still united to Christ. And therefore, there's no reason to despair that they will not rise at the day of resurrection. The emphasis there is on the positive hope that those bodies who have been severed from the soul in the violence of death, those bodies yet are still considered to be united to Christ and these dust particles will be reunited with that soul. The emphasis is upon the confidence that when Jesus returns, these bodies will not stay in the, in the grave but will be raised. Being still united to Christ, rest until the resurrection. Is that what, uh, is that what you think, Pastor Sarver, would be the, the, the best? So does that help? In, you see the emphasis there is not on uh, the negative aspects of how we explain it, but on the positive of... Uh, the confidence believers have. Death is a violent thing and it's a terrible thing. The fruit of sin is a wretched and painful and dark thing. And one of the, the, uh, the essences of its, of its wretchedness is that the body and soul, which were created to be united forever, are severed. Physical death is a violent and terrible experience because that which is supposed to have been united has been severed by our sin. What God joined together, man, by his sin, has rendered asunder. And so the question would be, what then happens? Uh, those bodies turn back to dust. And if we look at it with the eye of sight, there's not much hope that there's any future for that. And yet in God's word, those bodies that return to dust are still united to Christ. That means there is no way that they can do anything but rise at the appointed season. So that in 1 Corinthians 15, when we're told that at the coming of Christ, uh, they that are Christ's, will come out of the tombs, out of the graves, uh, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then they that are Christ's at his coming. If you are Christ's, if you are in Christ, if Christ is in you, you are united to Christ. Perhaps the strongest textual support for that view is in Romans 6. And if you want to turn there just briefly, I'll try to support my comments with the Scripture. And by the way, some of the questions uh, and answers are going to be very difficult to support from Scripture. So uh, we're going to do our best. But some of the answers are, that's why they're good questions, because they are the kinds of questions that men have debated because there aren't as clear answers in the Bible. Chapter 6 of Romans, verse 3, are you, Or are you ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death. We were baptized into his death, therefore buried with him. Since we had been baptized into his death, we were united with him and buried with him. That like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. And note this verse 5. For if we have become united with him or united with the likeness of his death we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection the key word there is united we're in union with christ those who are believers in christ have been united to christ in his death in his burial in his resurrection and yet the resurrection does not yet manifest itself there's much about what we are in Christ that we cannot see. What, that, that's why the scripture in Romans 8 then <coughs> excuse me, speaks of 
the whole creation groaning together, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. The sons of God are not yet manifested as sons of God. We still look like sons of Adam. Now, we are living more and more like sons of God. But from the eye of the world, we are not yet manifested. And what does John say in 1 John 3? Beloved, we are now the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there's something that's going to change when Jesus comes. Among other things, the sons of God are going to have their debut. They're coming out. Their appearance, the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. The whole creation groans together in travail until now, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. At which time these mortal bodies will be swallowed up with immortality. And yet it doesn't appear yet. So what do we do? We live by faith. We live in hope. We're saved in hope, Romans 8 says. Hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, what does he yet hope for? We were saved into hope and out of hope and by hope. We live waiting in hope for the manifestation of Christ. At which time then we will and the world will see what we really are. The sons of God in power and in glory. But now we're in weakness and we die. And when saints perhaps in the first century, who did not anticipate physical death after the Lord ascended. There might have been a period of theological struggle there. And the first saint dies, and that could have sent shockwaves through some of the people that thought, wait a minute, I thought he was about to restore the kingdom. Nothing's changed. We still get sick, we still die. And I believe that at the heart of that issue is some of this theology of prosperity preaching and A health and wealth gospel where many are still struggling to overcome the remains of the curse in a way, or could we say at a time in which God never ordained the saints overcome it. They want to relieve us of the pain of sickness and of death. And they think it's somehow a dishonoring of the gospel. And I think some of them are well meant in their struggle. They think somehow it's a dishonoring of the gospel if a saint is sick. They look at a saint who's in Christ and they look at the language of by his stripes we are healed. And they say, wait a minute, it's not right for someone who's in Christ to get sick. And uh, some have even begun to teach that you should not die and that God can raise the dead and will raise the dead. And that if you really had enough faith, uh, you would be. That kind of thing is an effort to struggle with this dilemma of how can a man who's in Christ die? But the key to this in the scripture is each in its own order. God has ordained that we not, upon conversion, pass into the the glorified state. But there's a period of waiting. God has ordained that, that regeneration does not sanctify the whole body in the sense of making it sinless and perfect and passing it into the next age. Saints still die. And yet the time will come that they will rise from the dead. Why? Because they're united with Christ. That's a guarantee. They cannot help but rise from the dead because they are in Christ. They're united to Christ. They were buried with him, so they will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Not only as they live now and walk in newness of life, but in actual physical resurrection later. Now, does that help uh, where we are? Okay. Now, let me dive into these next questions. And I've sort of... 
tried to order them in some order. You'll see pretty soon, I think, that we'll not be able to cover all these today. First question that I wish, wish to try to answer is this. Will there be any instant conversions when the Lord descends and comes again? Have you ever thought about that? Now, I don't know. Uh, maybe the person that asked the question, has this, have you heard this taught uh, by some? Is this something that's been taught? Uh, anybody ever heard this? I don't know. I'm sure there's, you've heard that. Okay. I'm a little ignorant of that. Uh, I'm sure there's some mainstream of theology someplace that asserts such a thing, but I'm not familiar with who it would be. Uh, will there be any instant conversions? In other words, when the Lord comes, somebody says, oh, the Lord's coming. Will there be a moment or two for them to repent and, and get saved? And will some be converted like that? Or perhaps we might even, some might perhaps think that the Lord comes and just saves them even without their repenting. Perhaps just some sort of, he just decides to make it happen. I think the answer to that uh, uh, from the scripture, my answer to that is no. And I, the reason I want to say that is from following text. First, First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. I'm familiar that for some of you, you may have had your introduction to the doctrine of the second coming through the Schofield Bible or dispensationalism. I don't have time to talk about all that. Uh, I hope that if you've heard it the way I heard it when I was growing up, that you don't... Uh, miss what we're about to expound in chapter 5 because some of the classic dispensational interpretation of chapter 5 is that it's dealing with a different group than chapter 4 is dealing with. But I submit to you it is not. It's written to the same church, to the same people for the same purpose, and it applies to the same saints. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 1. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that ought to be written to you. For yourselves know perfectly. In other words, they've been fully taught. They perfectly knew. Their knowledge was complete. They had been that had the whole theology taught to them about this stuff, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, what is, what's, what's the imagery there? Well, we, when we dealt with the second coming, we brought out that imagery. When they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall in no wise escape. The picture here is that when Christ comes, those that have not believed on him aren't going to get away. There will be no escape. It's going to come suddenly the way a thief comes into your house and you kind of wake up out of your sleep and your goods are gone. And it, you, there's, it's too late for you. You weren't prepared. He came. It's over. The way a thief sneaks in suddenly and gets the gun up to the temple and says, I want the jewels. Uh, you don't escape. Uh, that's the picture of this passage. Well, another passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 strengthens the imagery. In 2 Peter, we're talking about the destruction of the cosmos or the renovation of the universe at the coming of Christ. The day of the Lord, the same thing. Many are going to be saying, where is the sign of his coming? They're called scoffers by the apostle. They have willingly forgotten that God made the world and that God already judged the world once by water. They don't like to believe that, so they've taken that out of their Bibles. And now they questioned whether there will ever be a second judgment of the world. They don't like the concept of judgment, so they've developed a theology that doesn't include it. The flood is not in their Bible, nor is the fire in their Bible. But Peter says, nevertheless, in verse 8, uh, no, verse uh, 10, the day of the Lord will come. 
as a thief. In the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that these things are thus all to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy living and godliness, etc.? Now, again, the import of this passage without expounding the whole thing is obvious. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. And when it comes, everything's going to burn up, melt. The atomic structure of the universe is going to disintegrate. It's going to break up. God's going to redo it. He's going to break it up and renovate it. Not an annihilation, but a renovation under fervent heat. And it's going to happen so suddenly it's like a thief. And it's going to happen so that you who know it's going to happen better live right. Now, what manner of living ought you to live knowing this is going to happen? The import of the text is not, well, when it happens, uh, if you notice it begin to happen, you better then start thinking seriously about whether you're prepared because you'll want to repent when that happens. That's not the nature of this text. The text is... You better get ready now because that day is coming and apparently if you have not been living holy and godly, that day is coming on you as a thief. Another passage and I think one that even simpler and closer to the point in Matthew 24. Maybe not simpler but at least in the exposition of Christ himself about the nature of his coming. Matthew 24 verse 26. He's describing these two events in answer to the question of the apostles when they said, when shall these things be? And these things referred to the destruction of the temple that he had mentioned when he said, not one stone will be left standing on another. And when will the sign of your coming be in the end of the world? And they in their minds no doubt thought that the two were identical. And so they were asking two questions, but thinking they were asking one. When will this temple be destroyed in the world end? And he's answering both questions, and he's trying to inform them that one is going to happen at a different time that the other is going to happen. And all of Matthew 24 gets very confusing because the Lord deals with one, and then he skips over and deals with the other, and then he goes back and deals with the first, and then he deals with the other. And sometimes it looks like he's almost dealing with both, and it gets a little puzzling. Even more when you read Luke 21 in the parallel passage, and, and again in Mark's parallel passage, you can get into some stuff that's very difficult to interpret. And I say that because... Some greatly respected biblical interpreters differ and differ with strong arguments, which confuse me when I read them. And I say it that way because if you ever read them all, you'll get confused. And I don't want you to feel all uh, panicky if you do get confused. Some others of us get confused because there are good, strong arguments that have to be waded through and deeply analyzed before you can come to quick decisions. Well, in Matthew 24... In this process, the Lord wants to distinguish between the nature of his coming and the nature of the destruction of Jerusalem and these other events. He has said the Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by the armies of the Gentiles. When you see that, then you get your stuff off the top. Don't go down to the house. You get down the ladder and get out to the field. I hope it doesn't happen on a Sabbath day, etc. When the Romans surround the city of Jerusalem and the great destruction comes on this temple that I've mentioned, you folks better get out of town so you're not a part of the great siege and, the, and a tremendous tribulation that will be unprecedented in the history of Israel. But then he says in verse 26, If therefore they shall say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, in reference to Christ's coming, not in reference to the Roman soldiers surrounding Jerusalem, but in reference to Christ's coming, don't you go out there. Why? 
Or if they say, behold, he's in the inner chambers, believe it not. Why not believe it? How do you know he's not out there in the field or in the desert? How do you know he's not in the inner chambers that you could go see him? Because, verse 27 says, as the lightning comes forth from the east and is seen even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. He describes something of the nature of the coming of Christ. It is not like something you can predict or say, well, here he comes. I see the Lord. He's outside the door. Get ready. It's not even going to be the kind of thing you can say, ah, lightning is beginning to flash. And that's not the way lightning flashes. It's like the lightning. And it's too late to adjust your channel or to straighten out your heart. So the imagery here is the suddenness of his coming as opposed to the development of the Roman siege of Jerusalem, which took three years. And they, the soldiers were seen and the Roman eagle was seen on the banner and they began to gather around Jerusalem. And people had time, if they remembered Christ's words, to get out of town before the siege was closed in tight. And many did, we read historically. Some of the saints who remembered Christ's warnings got out of Jerusalem and missed the great siege of Jerusalem and were not a part of the eating of babies to survive. But a lot didn't. But in the second coming, it's not going to be like that where you have a developing group of soldiers. Uh, and, brother, it's, it's one of the reasons that I do not believe that we may expect that something's going to happen in northern Palestine that's going to get us all ready for the second coming. The second coming's not going to happen like that with some sort of unprecedented world thing that everybody's going to say, hey, this could be it. The, the imagery of the scripture to me is uh, you never know the day or the hour. And there's a suddenness about it that no time to change. And then lastly, well, verse 37 of the same chapter. Turn over to verse 37. As it was... As were the days of Noah, so shall be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They had no thought that this judgment was going to come. There was no indication geographically or climactically. Everything's going on as usual. That's the reason scoffers doubt the second coming. Nothing changes. They look around, they see no evidences. And they say, where's the sign of his coming? And in the days of Noah, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, living out their normal lives without reference to judgment until the day. Then verse 39, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Two in the field, one taken, one left not going to be uh, time for discussion or debate. It's going to be the way it was when Noah came. Those that have not believed are going to be all taken away. They'll not know it till the day comes. You see, it's the nature of unbelief not to be prepared because the unbeliever doesn't expect the day to come. And when the day comes, the same unbeliever Hasn't in him, even if there were time, which we don't see there's going to be, the disposition to believe. He's an unbeliever. But the essence or the nature of the second coming seems to indicate it's not going to be time. We won't turn there, but you are familiar with Second Thessalonians chapter 1 that describes the descent of the Lord from heaven in flaming fire with the holy angels to take vengeance on them who knew not God 
and obeyed not the gospel. One of the features of the second coming is that the second coming is a seal of doom on those that till he came did not believe him. The judgment is against the unbeliever of the gospel. The one who willingly knew not God. So when Christ descends from heaven, he's not coming so as to give them one more chance. He's coming to judge them who didn't believe the gospel. That's the point of that passage. And to take vengeance on them that knew not God. So my answer to the question, there will be no instant conversions at the coming of Christ. There may be some just before. But it'll be a part of the same process of gospel preaching and spirit convicting and uh, repentance and faith. God, no doubt, will be merciful to some just before his coming and save them. But not by virtue of his coming. Not because they see it and therefore quickly change. Brethren, it's like the twinkling of an eye. That's faster than the winking of an eye. The twinkling is, if you think, that's a twinkling. That's how long it takes for a sparkle of light to twinkle in the eye. That's how quickly this is going to transpire. We need to be prepared. Any further questions on that issue to follow up? All right, second question I have regarding the new heavens and the new earth. Question is, will we see the change spoken of in 2 Peter chapter 3? Behold, the new heavens and the new earth, and Peter describes the renovation. Will we see it? Well, my best answer to that is, I don't think the emphasis of the scriptures that we'll see it as much as we'll be a part of it. We're going to be involved in it. We're going to be changed too. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, uh, for the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. The saints will be in the process of this change. There's a double change taking place. There's the blessed change of the perfecting of the saints coupled with the wretched change of the judgment of the cosmos. And the renovation and cleansing of the cosmos and the removal of everything that offends and all sin so that what's remaining is a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. It's the final act of saving. It's the consummation of salvation. It's cosmic salvation to its consummate perfection. And all that involves not only the judgment of the unrighteous and their separation from the saints, which is depicted in various imagery in the New Testament, like the sheep and the goats, like there's nothing that defiles that comes into the city, they're without, etc. That imagery of separating the, the unsaved from the saved, the wheat and the tares at the time of harvest, there's that. And that's glorious because it, it frees the saint up from living in a wicked world. The environment is no longer going to be evil. The world will not any longer be a perilous place to live where men will be lovers of their own selves. None of those men will be in that world. They're severed from it. But also that world is going to be transformed, even the cosmos. So my answer to it is I'm not sure the emphasis is whether we stand back and observe. We're going to be in the midst of all this. And I'm not sure that we would go much further because the scripture doesn't really specifically uh, address the subject of what we will be doing in terms of what we are seeing And I don't know that it would make that big of an ethical difference in the way we would live. But a second part of this question, will heaven and earth remain two distinct places? I think that question means uh, we're going to have an earth like this and we're going to have a universe above it the way we have now. Uh, I tend to be one that thinks, yes, there will be a heaven and a new earth. If the scripture describes God created the heavens and the earth, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. 
the same imagery. Now, you say, well, how do you know? What if that's symbolic? Brethren, I don't know. Um, I think there's a lot about this we don't know. I think there's a lot about our generation and our age that the Old Testament prophets couldn't see clearly. And I think there's a lot about the age to come that as we read the New Testament prophetic literature, it's just not clear. That's why there's room for debate in the church. That's why good men have differed and have not determined that it to be a, a test of fellowship where they differ on these things because some of them are very difficult to be certain about. My own uh, belief, though, is that, and the next part of the question, will the righteous spend eternity on a renewed earth? I believe that man will inhabit a renovated earth. I think the scriptures in Isaiah, the scriptures in Revelation, the scriptures tend to indicate in Romans that the universe which was created for man and which, was, which man was given high standing in and the earth which man was given dominion over fell with man's sin. Salvation is the correction of that which went wrong. Jesus came to put right what went wrong in the fall. And the second Adam has inaugurated a new humanity and is going to bring in a new creation and is going to finish what he correct what went wrong with the first Adam. And I think that in my view, I think that it requires a new earth done right without sin. And it's going to be grace. It will no longer man failed. Man's probation he failed it. He sinned, so he cannot look on the wonderful earth and say, I did it. He looks back and says, what mercy, what grace. God gave this to us after we blew it, after we sinned. And to the praise of the glory of his grace, I expect that we will inhabit a new earth. I don't know any scripture that gives the impression that saints are going to be floating around on a cloud with a harp and some wings. I don't see that in my Bible. I see it in literature. I see it in films. I see it in cartoons. I hear it in jokes, but I don't see it in the scripture. Now, am I saying it can't happen that way? No. Am I saying there has to be an earth as we know it? No. In fact, the next part of the question says, will the earth, like our resurrection bodies, be recognizable yet different? These are questions that are, that are good questions. They're, they're questions many of us ask and would wish somebody would talk about sometime. The problem is all of us have those questions because the Bible doesn't get into those kind of specifics and give us a description of them. And I don't want to go further than the scripture. My own inkling and indication is that inclination is that the world will be a new universe with major differences and yet some sort of continuity there. As we've talked about our resurrection bodies, there is continuity, identifiability, and yet there is diversity. It's like his glorious body. What do you see in Christ? You see his fresh wounds in his risen body. You had, he's, there's an identifiable characteristic between his pre-resurrection body and his post-resurrection body. And yet, there are differences, to be sure. Uh, glory and immortality are different from carnality and mortality. What are the differences? How will, I don't know. There's some of that, brethren, we'll have to find out when we get there. Yes, Pastor Sarver. Hmm. Now, as it were, it's raining 
Good, good word. No, no more distinction, perhaps, we couldn't say, but no more division, we could say. Uh, another part of that imagery is that the holy city is of God, not of man. It's not the Jerusalem beneath. It's the Jerusalem above that comes down out of heaven from God. It's the work of grace, not the work of works. Whereas the argument in that generation from the Jewish nation was, if it's going to be God's city, we're going to build it. It's our temple. It's uh, we've got to wait for a restoration of this temple in Jerusalem. And the gospel continued to say, no, when God restores this temple, it's coming down from heaven. It's going to be a heavenly temple, a heavenly city, the bride of Christ prepared, adorned. Thank you. That's, that's good to, a good way of putting it. Not uh, any longer. There, there may be a distinction, but not a division. Heaven and earth in harmony, as they should have been. And we're in the beginning. And again, some of these questions are very difficult to be precise about and answer because the scriptures, as far as I can find, are not precise about them. And with good old John Calvin, we don't want to be hasty to go beyond the scripture. All right. Another question related to that before we move on. All right. Number three. Will you be able to recognize your wife and children? And this must have been written by a husband. So I've added, will you be able to recognize your wife, children, or husband in heaven? <clears throat> That's a difficult and interesting question. I want to start with the, my last response first. Whatever it's going to be is better than anything you've ever had here. If the reason for our asking is that we're somehow afraid that we're going to lose the precious relationship we have here, and, and we hate to lose it because we've so in, been enamored by it, <laughs> And after counseling, marriage counseling for a lot of years, I, I, I wonder how many people are really worried about that too much. Uh, and I don't mean that to, to impugn the uh, delights and the uh, wonders of marriage. But whatever there is going to be in heaven, it's going to be so far surpassing the sweetest relationship here that I don't know that we would even want to compare I do know that the Lord says that in that world, they will be as the angels, not giving in marriage or marrying. Remember the Sadducees ploy to try to trap him about the resurrection of the body. And they said, all right, big deal. If the body's going to be resurrected, we got one for you. A guy uh, uh, gets married to a girl and he dies. And then his brothers take seven of them live and die. She outlives them all. Finally, she does. Now, whose wife she going to be in the resurrection? If you're going to, God's really going to create a problem if he raises the dead because we're going to have chaos, a bunch of seven husbands fighting over a woman. And how's that going to be worked out? You explain it. And remember the Lord said, you, need, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You do greatly err. And then he explained to them. He gave them a rational answer. He said, in that world, they are going not, there's not going to be marrying or giving in marriage. They're as the angels. I don't think he means they're going to be angels, but in reference to marriage... To sexual union, they're going to be like angels. 